1 Samuel 17, verses 1 through 11 and 37 through 51. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Sukkah, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Sukkah and Ezekah, and Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained them, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone, and struck the Philistine and killed him. 
there was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Anna Carnes. Well, what we've been up to this summer is we're, we're looking at what we're calling the Bible's greatest hits, these, these famous popular stories that uh, have worked their way into, uh, in many ways, kind of our, our common vocabulary and, and even, even shows up in different cultural stories. But uh, today we're looking at what you might say is this is a top three top three most famous story, David and Goliath. I mean, it's hard to get more famous than this. And so the question is, okay, famous story, simple story in one sense, but, but what's the point of it? What's the heart of it? Is it, is it really just like the, the OG underdog story where the little guy wins, you know, like the Cinderella story of the Sweet 16, the no-name team takes it all? Like, is, that, is, that, is that what it is, just this inspirational story, or is, or is there more going on here? Uh, I want to get into it by um, setting it up this way. Early on in our marriage, we, when we bought our first home, we were living in Charlotte, North Carolina at the time. We bought a home in this beautiful, historic neighborhood, old houses, big front porches. And the house that we bought had just recently been flipped. So even though it was a house built in the 20s or so, it was all new appliances. They put in this beautiful marble countertops in the kitchen. It was awesome. So Catherine and I move in, and we're enjoying our new home. And, and uh, a few months into owning this home, we start to see these cracks show up on the walls in the kitchen, which, you know, we, we were like, that's, that's normal, right? Cracks. You've seen cracks in houses before. This is normal. Old houses. It's, maybe it's settling still. And, um, and uh, then we started to notice a few weeks in that our our countertops started in the kitchen started to get kind of uneven and a little wonky. You, you, you couldn't, it wasn't, it wasn't flat anymore. Like, I think something's not right. And so we called somebody in and they, they did all this work to discover that they put in, when they, the people who flipped this house put these really heavy marble countertops in the kitchen but hadn't reinforced the foundation of the home. The, the home was not built on a slab. It was built on piers, on pillars. And so the, the foundation of the home couldn't support the weight of the countertops, and the kitchen was literally sinking into the ground, which was fun. And so we hired a, a, a structural engineer and threw all of this money into this house, and it was, it was a lot of fun. It was the joy of, you know, home ownership and... Uh, since then, we've had no problems with any homes. It's just been deli- a delightful delight to own homes. And uh, I bring that up because I think that that's a, um, that's a helpful image when you think about what faith is. When, when people hear the word faith, it's easy to think, well, faith is, um, uh, faith is, what is like when you believe in stuff. So you b- believe in, in the existence of God or you believe in, in this or that religion or, you know, whatever. But, but I think faith is a lot more robust than that. Faith is the act of taking the weight of your life, as it were, and, and resting it on top of something else. And so the, the real question is not, do you have faith? 
Because I think regardless of if you're religious or not religious, every single one of us is we're taking our hopes and our dreams and our soul and our life and we're putting it on something to say that's the thing that's going to give me meaning, that's going to give me purpose, that's going to give me an identity. We're, we're putting the weight of our lives on something. So the better question is, can that thing, whatever it is, support the weight of your life? Or do the cracks start to show up? Does the foundation, it's not strong enough to hold the weight of your life, the weight of your hopes and dreams. As we get into the story, you have three main characters. And each one of these characters is like, uh, gives, you, gives you a little case study to show you different people that are placing the, their faith into different things. And so let's look at these three main characters. You've got Goliath, you've got King Saul, and you've got your boy David. And we'll, we'll look at what are they trusting in, and is the thing that they're trusting in, can it support the weight of their life? So that's where we're going. And just to cite my, cite my sources, I listened to a sermon maybe seven, eight years ago by this pastor in Florida, a guy named Ray Cortez, and he helped me think about this passage. I haven't been able to think about it any differently since then. So thanks to Ray Cortez. Shout out to him for his help. First, Goliath. What is Goliath trusting in? Well, to get into that, we've we got to set the stage a little bit. The story is you've got the uh, people of Israel, and uh, they're at war with their uh, bitter enemies, the Philistines. And the setup is you've got the army of Israel on, on, one, uh, on, on top of one mountain, hills over here, and then you've got this valley in between, and you've got the Philistine army on these mountains over here. And in this valley, twice a day, a warrior from the Philistine army, a guy named Goliath, would come down by himself and taunt the Israelites to come and fight him. And of course, Goliath is known to be a large dude. Scholars say, well, some scholars say he was uh, seven feet tall. Some scholars say he was probably more like eight or nine feet tall. Doesn't matter. The point is, dude was large. And without going into all of the details in the passage, you see that he's also decked out in like the, all the latest high-tech weaponry and armor. He's got a javelin and a sword and a spear and a, I mean, he's got all the stuff. So you picture like a hybrid between the Incredible Hulk and Hagrid, and he's in an Iron Man suit. It's like, dude's uh, scary. And uh, here's, here's what he says when he's, when he's shouting out there every single uh, day. Look at verse 9. It says, he stood and he shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. So you see the terms of the battle that they're working with here. This isn't like an army versus army deal like you see in Lord of the Rings movies, just this horde of people clashing into each other. This is a 1v1 cage match where whoever wins, wins the battle on behalf of the, full arm, the whole army. If you beat Goliath, Israel wins the battle. If Goliath beats you, the Philistines win the battle. So now you know why in verse 11... Everybody is cowering and terrified, and nobody's stepping up to this dude because he's never lost. I mean, look at him. He's a killing machine. He's like 88 and 0. He is uh, he's like Thanos with all the infinity stones. Like, it's, it, he is going to win. 
So here's the question. What is Goliath trusting in? What, what is it that he has placed the weight of his existence on top of? And I think it's very clear. He is trusting in himself. I mean, why wouldn't he? He's, he is extremely gifted. He is great at what he does. He is powerful. He is talented. He's got all the goods. He, 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 of course, he has confidence in himself. And in fact, what Goliath represents is in many ways like the, the poster child of what our culture is telling us to go be. The, the world at large is saying, okay, uh, dig deep, visualize your goals, go out there and get them, crush it, go like conquer the world. You don't need any help. You don't need anybody else. You don't need God. Just go do the thing. You got this. And that's, that's Goliath's mantra. I got this. And he has proven it time and time again that, yeah, he's got this. But here's what's fascinating. In many ways, Goliath is just a, is a mirror to, to many of us because many of us in this room have this same sort of Goliath mojo. We may not look like Goliath, but the operating system of our lives are the same where we say, okay, I look at my life and it's busy and it's chaotic and it's crazy, but if I apply myself, if I work hard enough, I can master my life. I can conquer the chaos of my own life. My life and my kitchen can be as organized and as structured as I see on those TikTok videos. Uh, I, um, I will have a, uh, a meal plan for our children that is not only healthy, it is cost-effective. We will do it. We will beat the meal problem. Uh, we will, uh, I can move into this world, and if I uh, have a, a, a meticulous day planner and a committed exercise regimen, and uh, if I listen to leadership podcasts, and if I have a five-year plan, and if I use words like action items, then I will get it done. And so we go out there, and, and we get it done, and we say, well, I don't need to waste time with therapy or talking about my feelings or dealing with church too much. I'm going to stuff all of that down. I'm going to throw back a couple of Red Bulls, and I am going to grind, and I'm hustling, and I'm going to get it done. I got this. That's what it looks like when we place the hopes of our dreams and our, 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 the weight of our lives upon ourselves. I got this. I can do it. I can conquer. I can master and get it done. The problem with that, as we see with David at least, is he dies. He loses. It doesn't work. He thinks he's invincible. He thinks he's the Titanic. They build this awesome thing. It's never been sunk. It's unsinkable. It goes out and it sinks. He thinks he's invincible, and that's the reason why he loses. He thinks he can beat this chump David all by himself, and he loses because he's not invincible. And you and I aren't invincible either. In fact, we are incredibly limited. We're not omnicompetent. We're not omnipotent. We need sleep. We need food. We need friends. We need God. We need help. We need rest. We are needy. And so this myth of I got this, it doesn't work. The foundation crumbles. It's not strong enough. That's Goliath. What about uh, Saul? King Saul. He is the king of Israel. 
and in fact, I, you know, I didn't put this in your bulletin because the passage was uh, not short already. So, uh, but two times, two times prior to this passage in the book of 1 Samuel, Saul is described as being a head taller than all the other people in Israel. In fact, that's one of the reasons why he was crowned as the king is because he's a big dude. He's impressive looking. So not only is Saul the king, he is Israel's giant, which means it would have been expected and assumed this is the dude that should go out there and fight Goliath. This is the guy to do it. But what does he do? Look at verse 11. When he sees Goliath, it says he was dismayed and greatly afraid. Dismayed and afraid. He's paralyzed with fear. He's like, there's no way I'm going out there. This dude's going to crush me. But here's what's fascinating about Saul. Saul is a true-blood Israelite, which means he's not some godless pagan Philistine. He, like, is religious. He goes to the temple. He worships God. He prays. In fact, it's one of the king's jobs to, like, read the Bible, to scribe the Bible. And, um, in fact, I I didn't put it in your... um, well, I did put it in your bulletin. Verse 37, fast forward. Later on, when David goes out to fight Goliath, uh, Saul says, go, the Lord be with you. He's got the right religious language. He goes to church. He's a religious person. But here, here, here's the rub. When, when the rubber hits the road and Saul is facing a problem that is overwhelming and insurmountable, his faith, his religion has no impact on his life. It doesn't change what he does at all. He's just as afraid, just as anxious, just as terrified, and it does nothing for him. And so what that shows you is, in this moment, he's actually, functionally, trusting in the same thing that Goliath is trusting in, which is himself. The only difference is, he doesn't think he has the goods to accomplish what's in front of him. Goliath and Saul, they're, just, they're mirror images, they're, they're inverted images of each other. They look radically different on the surface, but when Goliath sees a problem, he says, I will crush it. When Saul sees a problem, he says, I am going to be crushed by it, so why even try? Goliath sees a problem and says, uh, I got this. Saul sees a problem and says, I don't got this, so I'm, I'm going I'm to quit. I'm going to throw in the towel. And just like this passage shows you there's a lot of Goliaths in the room, it also shows us that there's a lot of Sauls in the room, meaning people who say to themselves, I'm overwhelmed, I can't keep up, I don't have what it takes, I feel like the the cards are stacked against me, so why even try? Why even exert the energy to go out there and do it? I just know I'm going to lose. There's a, a, a book that I was reading recently, and the author was talking about how modern pundits, pundits um, often make fun of younger generations, millennials, Gen Z, whatever the newest generation is called. It's, you know, it's just, he was just saying it's low-hanging fruit for modern uh, social analysts to make fun of, to say, well, these kids, you know, they're, they're so fragile, they're snowflakes, they're sensitive. They don't, they don't have the grit to get out there and, like, cut it in the real world. And what he was saying, this author was saying was, um, I don't know if that's the case. I don't know if it's the case that these younger generations uh, just don't care or they, ca- they could care less. He's saying he thinks that they actually care too much. 
they just can't envision themselves ever winning. Winning, it's not that winning is stupid to them. Winning is everything to them. They just don't believe that they have what it takes to go out there and do it. So he says, the reason why somebody may stop going to class or the reason why somebody may stop going to work or stays home and just binges through friends for 36 hours in a row or can't get out of bed, it's not because they care less. It's that they care a lot. The thing matters to them. They just don't feel like they have what it takes to go out and do it. So they give up. Why try? What am I going to contribute? What am I going to do? And they throw in the towel. And it's the same Goliath instinct. It's just the inverted version of it. Trusting myself. I just don't, I just know I'm inadequate. I don't have what it takes. So you got Goliath. You got Saul. What about David? What does David trust in? Well, uh, here's the story. The story is, is that uh, David shows up at the battlefield. He's not even there as a soldier. He's a, he's a young teenager. He's there as an errand boy, just bringing like some cheese and some bread, bringing snacks to the soldiers. And he happens to overhear Goliath out there taunting Israel and making fun of their God. And he's like, why is nobody taking this chump out? He's like, okay, I'll do it. And again, I didn't put it in your bulletin, but, but Saul stops him and he says, are you crazy? This dude's a professional assassin. You're a tween. What are you doing? You've even gone through puberty yet, and you're going to go out there and fight this dude. You're going to get yourself killed, and you're going to get all of us killed as well. Don't do it. But then David explains in verse 37, he says, I have seen God care for me and protect me and defend me time and time again when I have been up against insurmountable, hard, scary situations. And I can I, I trust that God can and that God will take care of this for us. And so he shows you. He, he is actually banking everything on God. He is trusting his life to God. And actually not just his life, but everyone else's life as well. And so this kid goes out there to fight Goliath, and he doesn't have any armor on. He doesn't have a sword. He really doesn't even have any weapon he just has a, a sling and some rocks. It's like a total joke. In fact, Goliath is like, is this a joke? Do you think I'm a dog? You're going to come at me with, like, sticks? Like a child? It's, I mean, it's almost like an SNL skit. It's so, it is so over the top. You've got this weak, inadequate, squeaky-voiced kid versus this monster. And, of course, what happens? David takes his sling, and he throws it, and it bangs up against Goliath's head, and Goliath passes out, and then David runs over to Goliath and takes Goliath's sword out of his sheath and chops his head off, which is a detail not included in many of the children's Bibles, holding up the head for everybody to see. It's, it's you know, gruesome and, and crazy, and uh, he beats him. He defeats him. And you hear that, and you think, okay, well, what's the point of that? The point is not to display how courageous and awesome David is. That's not the point. The point is to show you how ridiculous and inadequate and laughable David is and how awesome and amazing God is for using unqualified, inadequate people to accomplish the impossible. The point of the story is not go be like David. I've heard, you know, I'm sure you have if you've been around church context countless sermons on this passage where it's, go summon your strength, dig deep, be a David, fight the Goliaths. 
And I'll tell you, I have tried, and it doesn't work. I am anxious and afraid and insecure, and no matter how hard I dig deep and try to summon up the courage, it doesn't work. I'm still scared. I'm still afraid of failure, still afraid of confrontation and criticism and afraid of looking like a fraud, afraid of uh, Redeemer falling apart and it's my fault. All of the, insecu- all the insecurity, all the anxiety, all, all of this stuff, it's still in there. And so the question is not, how do we go be like David? The question is, what does God provide for people like me and provide for people like you? Because you and I are not David in the story. We're the unnamed Israelite in the corner with our knees knocking, afraid to go take on Goliath. And what God provides for people like us is he provides a savior. He provides David. And here's what we know about David. Two things. David was weak. David beat Goliath, not in spite of his weakness, but because of his weakness, because he was so vulnerable, because he was so defenseless, because he had no weapon, Goliath, he was, un, he, he was, you know, he let his guard down. And because he was unguarded and didn't take this threat seriously, that's what beat him. Weakness beat him. And not only is David this weak savior, he's also this representative savior, meaning when David wins this battle, he wins the battle on behalf of the entire army, the army that's terrified and too chicken and too afraid to do anything. They win, and they did nothing, didn't even lift a finger. Think about it like when you watch the Grizzlies play, and you're at home on the couch, and you're watching the game, and you're, you're texting with a friend who's also watching it a couple streets over, and and they're 20 points down, and somehow they pull it out in the end. It's amazing, and, and, and you know, they, they win. And so you're texting your friend like, that game was crazy. That game was nuts. I can't believe we won. We won? You ever paid attention to how we talk when we're talking about the Grizzlies? We didn't do anything. We're not on the team. We didn't step foot on the court once. We're not even at the forum. We're at home. And yet... That language is right. We did win because they represent Memphis. They represent us. We live or die on their performance. We didn't lift a finger. We're, we're at home on the couch in sweatpants with Cheeto dust on our fingers, and we won. We beat Golden State or whatever. When David beats Goliath, Israel wins the victory, and they didn't do a thing. That's what God provides for weak, needy people like you and for me. He provides a Savior, and he still does. Because centuries after the story, he sends a greater David, a better David, a great, great, great grandson of David, great David's greater son. This other shepherd from Bethlehem shows up, and how does Jesus show up? He shows up weak. He doesn't show up on a white horse, a stallion. He doesn't roll in on a tank. He doesn't come in with armor, conquering his enemies by force. He shows up vulnerable, economically disadvantaged, and, uh, and weak. He's described as like a little lamb 
vulnerable, defenseless, prepared for the slaughter. And as he gets arrested, as he gets captured, he, does not, he doesn't argue his way out of it. He doesn't beat up all the soldiers like Alan does in the Barbie movie. He, he, he just voluntarily gives his life over completely weak, completely vulnerable, and it is his weakness, it's his suffering, it is his death that wins the victory. His weakness wins. His weakness is what conquers. And because he is our representative, that means that that victory is ours when you put your faith in him, even though you didn't even lift a finger. He conquers death. He wins the victory. He pays the debt. He, he, he does everything. And all we did was nothing. And when you rest your very life upon him, you get all the benefits, all the perks of what he accomplished, even though you've done nothing. I'll end with this. Final thought. This is a little bit of an outdated uh, story, but these, these videos are still on the internet. You might be familiar with it. You remember the, the, the story of Team Hoyt, Rick and Dick Hoyt? It's this famous father-son racing duo. A number of years ago, um, when they had their son, Rick, uh, when Rick was born, he, he had a severe oxygen deprivation injury and uh, was severely injured and was diagnosed as a quadriplegic with cerebral palsy and was, was resigned to a wheelchair for the rest of his life, grew up in a wheelchair. When he was 15 years old, his um, father, uh, he told his father, I want to participate in this local race, a little five-mile uh, five race that they're trying to benefit um, uh, a lacrosse player who was also paralyzed. And so the father, you know, is not an athlete, not a runner, and uh, the, the, the son, Rick, in the wheelchair, he can't run. He can't, he doesn't have the strength to, to, to push the wheels. And so the, the father said, I'll just push you. And he goes out there and he pushes his son. They run the five miles together. They come in next to dead last and uh, cross the finish line. And he, as the story is told in the videos, he says at that point, he told his dad, dad, when, when, when we ran that race, uh, it, it felt like I wasn't handicapped. And that changed everything for that dad and for that family. And so since then, they have run over 1,000 races together with the dad pushing them. They've run marathons, triathlons. They've done uh, Ironman competitions. Uh, Dad's 70 years old doing all this. It's crazy. They, did a, they, they ran and biked across the entire continental U.S., which was uh, 3,735 miles. They did all that in 45 days. It's crazy. And at the end of every one of these races... 1,000-plus races, that young man in the wheelchair gets a medal put around his neck, and he didn't take one step. He didn't contribute anything to the race, and yet he got all the awards and he got all the credit because he had a father that loved him enough to provide everything for him. And you and I are in the same boat. We have a Father that loves us enough to provide everything for us in Jesus, who comes and wins the victory and conquers through his weakness on our behalf. And so when we roll the weight of our life onto him, we get all the awards. 
We get all the medals. We get all the credit. We get all the benefits for his work, and we didn't even lift a finger. Christian faith is not believing in the existence of God or merely believing in the existence of God. Christian faith is not feel really guilty and try to drum up enough motivation by telling yourself you should do more and try harder. Christian faith is resting the weight of your life on Jesus in receiving all the benefits of what he has accomplished in your place, which means that is the end of performance. That is the that is the, the door is open to liberation at that point. Resting in who Jesus is and receiving everything that he has accomplished on your behalf. That is a foundation that is solid and is secure, and you can bank everything on it, and the foundation of your life will not crack. Well, that is an invitation for you this morning. Let me pray for us. Oh, Father, I pray that you would give us eyes to see the beauty and the believability of Jesus. Father, so many of us, uh, our, our confidence in him is uh, fickle. Our confidence in him is, is fragile. At times we trust him, at times we don't. At times we rely upon him, other times we, we take the weight back off of him and put it back on ourselves. And so, Father, I pray wherever we find ourselves, even as we meditate on this story, that you would compel our hearts with the, the, both the strength and the weakness of Jesus, the beauty and the believability of Jesus, that we might have the confidence to roll more and more of the weight of our lives onto his back, our rock and our redeemer. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.